one may be open to blame. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband and is well known for her good deeds such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list, for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes and give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have in fact already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honour, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect and angels to keep these instructions without partiality and do nothing out of favouritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as, a, as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. May God grant us understanding of the truth in his word. Thanks, Mike. Morning, everyone. My name is Mark. If we haven't met, it's great to be with you this morning. As Cameron said, there is a number that you can text questions to, which I'll actually have on the screen for the whole service this time. It's also in the leaflets as well. So if there's any questions that come up that, uh, that are from the passage that you don't feel quite get answered in the sermon, feel free to text those through and I'll get up afterwards and have a go at answering them. And you're welcome to grab me afterwards and just chat privately if there's a question that you'd just prefer to, to chat about one-on-one as well. Well... 
family is a word that will cause different responses for all of us. Uh, maybe your family experiences have been positive, maybe they haven't been. Either way, there's, there's no such thing as a perfect family, is there? Every family's got their secrets, their baggage, and just, just the weird things about them. Uh, Alicia and I got married a couple of years ago, and we did marriage prep beforehand, and we got told that the, the most defining thing in our marriage would be family of origin. That's where we got taught about all the kind of different ways that our families have both shaped us and how that shapes the way that we look at the world and how we're defined by the way we've been up, by the way that we've been brought up in that way and how we'll both come together with two completely different ideas of how the world works because of our family backgrounds. And we've certainly found that to be the case. Uh, We've got both sets of parents here, so I won't elaborate on that any further, but take my word for it. But even if there's no such thing as a perfect family, we all have a sense of what a family should be like, don't we? The passage that we've just read is about church being a family, which Colin demonstrated very well with his family photo up the front. Uh, In verses 1 to 2, Timothy is told to treat the people that he ministers to like fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters. So like family. And that's the, the big picture of this whole letter, which is written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, his friend and fellow disciple. Uh, the church, the big picture of 1 Timothy is that the church is God's family. It's a family that is on mission for Jesus together and a family that is growing together in Jesus and seeking to display the truth of the gospel to the surrounding world. That's the big picture that we've seen in 1 Timothy so far, and it's kind of summed up in the, the key verse that we've been looking at, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, where the church is described as God's household, the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. That's the big picture of what we see in the church. Now, we've seen so far that the church exists to advance the gospel message, the great news of Jesus coming to save sinners. Uh, we've seen that God is on mission to save the lost And so we, as his church, are on mission as well. We've seen that as a church, we need to conduct ourselves with integrity to show that the gospel message is real in our lives. And that we need to be modelling godly living to each other so that we're building each other up in this faith as well. That's what we've seen in the first four chapters. So here we are in chapter five. Now, church as a family, it, it sounds nice, doesn't it? But what does that actually mean? And what does it look like practically on the ground? Well, we've, so we've seen the, kind of the big picture in verses 1 to 2 of church being a family. Verses 3 onwards, Paul gives three practical examples of what it looks like in his time and place for the church to be a family. And he talks about widows, elders, and slaves. Uh, so you can see the outline that we've got there, a church family, which I've just talked about uh, from verses 1 to 2, a family honouring the needy, a family honouring its leaders, a family honouring selflessly. I'm breaking it down to sort of focus on the the widows that Paul talks about, as well as the elders and the slaves. That gives you a bit of an idea of where we're going this morning. So the big idea is that the church is a family where all members are to be appropriately honoured. And for our regular members here, the challenge for us is, are we a good family? Are we a good church family? And what is my role um, in how I serve the church family? 
you're visiting from another church, it's the same question for, for your home church. And if you're just here this morning checking out what church is all about and what it is we believe, then it's fantastic that you're here. And I hope that the next few minutes are a great chance to show uh, what a wonderful thing it is to be a part of a church family and the great blessings that come from that. So in verses 3 to 16, Paul turns his attention to how the church honours widows. Now, there was no pension, no um, welfare system or anything in that day. So widows were extremely vulnerable financially. The situation here seems to be that elderly widows were missing out on financial assistance uh, that they desperately needed from the church. And there were two reasons for that that we see here. The first reason is that people weren't caring for the widows in their family. They were leaving the responsibility for the church to do that. The second reason is that there were younger widows who were taking advantage of the church's care. And so Paul addresses the first reason by saying that if you have relatives in your family who are in need, then you need to provide for them. He makes the point really strongly in verse 8 there, doesn't he? Anyone who doesn't do this has denied the faith. Couldn't really be much more emphatic than that. So even within the church family, there's a particular concern for caring for our immediate family. I know that a number of us here in the last year or two, just the time that we've been at this church, have gone through the experience of looking after elderly and, and dying parents. So that's, that's a very real concern for so many of us. Honouring and caring for our family is pleasing to God. Now, it's not completely clear what this list of widows is that Paul mentions in verse 9. Certainly, um, some kind of financial assistance was being provided to the widows who are on this list. Now, it may have involved the widow serving the church in some way as well. That's not completely clear from the passage, and some of the widows would have been very old anyway, so it's less likely that that's the case. The point is that it was intended primarily for widows who were too old to earn an income and so they were the most financially vulnerable. And it was also for widows who were proven and committed members of the church as well. Paul says that younger widows shouldn't go on the list. The reasons he gives for that are, firstly, they might break their pledge by remarrying, and secondly, they might become idle busybodies. The second reason, that the idle busybody one, that kind of makes sense, a bit if, if someone is young enough to be working or raising a family, but instead they're, they're getting handouts from the church each week, you can see how they'll have, there's the risk that they'll have too much time on their hands and they'll misuse it in some way. The bit about marrying is a bit less clear though. Now, possibly being on the widow's list meant um, signing a pledge uh, not to remarry. That's, that's a possible option from this. And so if a widow wanted to remarry, she would be breaking the oath that she made. I think that's possible. I think it's unlikely. We, we saw in chapter four last week in verse three that Paul rebukes the teachers who tell people to abstain from marriage. So it would seem kind of unlikely for him to say that and then say in the next chapter that people should abstain from marriage. I think more likely what's in view here is the temptation for younger widows to marry someone who's not a believer and to turn away from the faith in doing so. Uh, by marrying someone who's not a follower of Jesus and if that leads to walking away from the church, then 
these women have broken their first pledge or their first faith, which is to Jesus. And so Paul makes it clear, don't put young widows on the list. Encourage them to marry a Christian man, uh, to have a family and to live a life that honors God. Now, I take it that there would have been some sort of allowance for situations where there was a woman, a widow under the age of 60 who needed help. I don't think this is a completely um, explicit kind of thing that no one under 60 gets any sort of help at all. Uh, But you can see the principle here, can't you? The church is honoring the, the most vulnerable people within the church by providing a way for them to get the support that they need and to, to make sure there's nothing in the way of preventing them to get that support. Now, so as a church family, we're to have discerning care for the needy. That's the big principle coming out of this, discerning care for the needy. Which raises the question, who among us is needy? Who are the needy people in this building? right now? And really the answer is that we're all needy. We live in a world that is broken by sin. We're all affected by that. We're all, there are needs that we all have as we come to church today. And God uses us to care for each other with those needs. So pastoral care isn't just the people that have it all together, helping the people that don't have it all together. That's not what's going on at all. Um, Pastoral care is needy people helping other needy people. That's the way a church family works. Uh, But there are particular needs that arise um, when someone is going through grief or difficulties or poor health. Uh, It's those times when we can be helpful by visiting them, by providing meals for them, uh, praying for them. I think listening is a big one as well because it's when we, we listen to people. It's when we we learn what people's needs are and how we can help, how we can pray for them, how we can be a loving brother and sister to them. Now, being a man, I am a fixer by nature, not necessarily a good fixer at all, but I like the idea of fixing things. And so for me, it's very easy to, to try and fix people's problems, to try and jump straight to the solution without doing the work of listening in the process. And that's a mistake um, because we care for people and we show humility and wisdom by listening to, to what they say, to what they tell us, showing that we've understood them and acting and praying in response to that, not just what we think that they need. So how we welcome people into our lives is a big thing as well. I know that a few people here went to the Sam Albury talk Last year, Sam was um, giving a talk about uh, how the church can better engage with and care for uh, people with same-sex attraction within the church. One of the the really big things that stood out to me from that talk was actually something that was a lot more widely applicable than that. He challenged us on how much we open up our homes and our lives to other people in our church family. Now, I have a, a friend about my age who is single. He's a very, very active in the church that he goes to, um, gets involved in lots of things. Um, but he, he said to me once that he actually feels a bit, a bit isolated in his church family um, because of his stage of life, being sort of late 20s and single. 
Now, I know lots of single people who I wouldn't describe as being lonely, and I know married people who I would describe as being lonely. So there's no single equals lonely sort of equation going on here. But it's just good to keep in mind how we involve everyone at all, in all stages of life in our church family. We ran a Guess Who's Coming to Lunch event a few weeks back. That's basically where we just get everyone to nominate to either host or to attend a lunch, and we put all the papers together and we work out who's going to have lunch with who. Wouldn't it be great if that was a, a completely redundant event for us to run because everyone was getting invited to way too many lunches every week? Anyway, that would be a really great mark of a, a loving and caring church family. And again, this highlights the importance of growth groups. So much of our, our pastoral care happens, or at least it's initiated, in the, the growth groups uh, that we go to. Uh, groups where people are, are meeting together every week, opening God's word together, sharing life together, praying for each other, uh, trusting each other enough to be able to, to share openly and honestly about what's going on in life. When that's happening, it really goes a long way to us being a church family where we care well for each other. Now, caring for each other's needs takes time and effort. It's not something that's always easy to do. There will be an investment for us to do that. And let's be honest, life is busy enough with our own problems, isn't it, without even before we add helping other people with theirs on. I said before that we're all needy people as we come to church. We've all, everyone's sitting here with things in our minds that we're going to have to get onto during the week, uncertainties that we're not sure about. And we come here as needy people. And so there is a sacrifice involved in caring for each other in our needs. But a big reason we do it is because we know that Jesus helped us in our greatest need. We saw back in chapter one, Jesus came to save sinners he met us where we were. We were captive to sin with no hope of restoring our relationship with God on our own. And Jesus came to be our mediator, to pay our ransom, to make us right with God on the cross so that we could be welcomed into God's family. And so our right response to that is to be a family imitating Jesus. And we do that by caring for each other as needy people, pointing needy people to Jesus. So it'd be great to, to think about this passage as we come away from here and thinking, how can I include my church family more in my life? How does my diary or my calendar actually reflect the fact that I believe that I have a family that I go to church with? The great thing to be, to be thinking through how we can intentionally include each other more. Now, Seasons of life are going to be difficult. There are going to be times when you just won't have the, the capacity or the headspace to be able to, to do that on a regular basis. And, you know, there's obviously limitations that like you're not going to let someone who you've met for the first time babysit your kids or anything like that. But it's good, good just to be thinking through how um, life as a family looks practically um, for us as a church family. The church is a family that honours the needy, and it's also a family that honours its leaders. Now, the elders that we see in verse 17 would include the overseers, who we saw in chapter 3, so the, the senior minister of the church. 
Um, would also probably include a, a slightly wider circle of leadership than that. I think that's what's, what's being implied by the elders here. Uh, the double honour that's referred to, it, what's most likely referred to here is both financial payments and respect as well. So that's the, the kind of two sorts of honours for the elders. So how much should an elder get paid? How much should the senior minister of a church get paid? I don't know the answer to that, and Cameron didn't want me to flash his pay invoice. Well, he didn't actually ask, but I just assumed he'd say no. Um, I'd say a, help, a helpful way to think about it, though, would be enough for them not to have to worry, uh, but not enough that people would aspire to the job for the money. I think that's kind of a helpful balance to get as we think about that sort of thing. As far as respect goes as well, it comes back to chapter 3 where we saw that the people that are in these positions of leadership should be people who are worthy of respect in the first place. The role of the minister is an important one and it's appropriate for us to pray for those who minister to us and to show them respect in every way as well. Now as a staff team, we're always happy to have a bit of a, a laugh at each other. Cameron went for a, a walk around Tasmania a few weeks back and we had a lot of fun going to the cafe down the road and getting his face in the, the coffees down there and sending them to him while he was in Tassie and saying how much we were missing him. So happy to have a laugh at those things. Um, Colin paid for the extra money it cost to do that, which was nice of him. <laughs> it's, happy to, it's, it's good to be able to have a bit of a laugh about that. But at the same time, we're, we're a staff team who have a lot of respect uh, for the roles that Cameron has as our, our main overseer and for Colin as well, particularly next year as Colin heads out to plant the church next year. We're aware that um, those are roles that are important. They represent us as a church, and so they are worthy of respect. And so with that in mind, I'll probably get rid of that photo. It's probably <laughs> not hugely respectable. I'll get a bait for that afterwards. The reputation of the elder really, it goes hand in hand with the reputation of, of the church. They really affect each other, which is why Paul stresses here that elders need to be protected from false accusations. Uh, so verse 19 there, don't entertain an accusation unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. So we should be careful how we speak about the people who minister to us. Because the reputation of those in ministry has flow-on effects to the reputation of the ministry itself. Uh, so unfairly criticising or accusing the minister is going to undermine the ministry um, of us as a church. Uh, it's going to impact um, the reputation of the church and how the impact that we're able to have for the gospel. But on the other hand, elders do need to be held accountable for their sin as well. That's the flip side of this passage because this affects the church both on the inside and on the outside as well. If the minister's conduct is poor, it will affect the rest of the church. It will affect the reputation of the church. It will affect the, how the church is able to be on mission, uh, trying to advance the gospel uh, to those outside the church. And as we're aware, so often the church is in the news for, for all the wrong reasons. And so often that is related to the way that leaders have conducted themselves. Paul tells Timothy in verse 20, if elders are sinning, reprove them so others are warned. Verse 22, where he talks about not being hasty, laying on of hands. 
what he's saying there is, be careful who you choose to lead the church. So the laying on of hands is kind of like the ordination equivalent back in that day. Be careful who you choose to lead. Now we see in verses 24 and 25 there, not all sins and good deeds are going to be immediately obvious. So take the time to choose the right person to lead the church. Verse 23 is a bit of a funny one. You're probably wondering if I'd skipped over that on purpose. Uh, Paul has just told Timothy in verse 22 to keep himself pure. Uh, But he, he qualifies that, I think, in verse 23 by saying that it doesn't mean you just have to drink water being pure. Uh, perhaps part of the false teaching that we saw in chapter 4 uh, was saying that people sh- should abstain completely from alcohol. Uh, but given that wine seems to have been a, a common stomach pain remedy back then, which is probably because the wine was less polluted than the water in many of those parts back in that day, uh, Paul says to Timothy, being pure doesn't mean having to make yourself sick. So if wine is going to be helpful, then have some wine. Just to answer that tricky verse. The big point in verse 17 to 25 is just how closely intertwined the reputation of the church is uh, with the reputation of those who lead the church. And so every effort has to be made to protect the elder from false accusations. But also every effort has to be made to protect the church from poor leadership as well. So the church is to be a family honouring the needy, a family honouring its leaders, and a family honouring selflessly as well. The point that Paul is making with the slaves and masters example at the start of chapter 6 is that our family relationships should never be self-seeking. Christian slaves, verse 1, should consider their masters worthy of respect, regardless of whether the master is a Christian or not for the sake of the reputation of the church. Now, you can imagine if it was clear that it was the Christian slaves who were always misbehaving, then you can see how that sort of casts a bit of a dark shadow on the reputation of the church, can't you? It's a bit like you imagine in your workplace, if you have 50 people in your workplace and it's the three Christians there who are always rocking up late to work and that sort of thing, you can kind of, you see how that doesn't really cast Christianity in the best light. In verse 2 there, Paul makes the point that even if the the master of the slave was a Christian, even if the master was a Christian, the slave should not seek to have any advantage because of that. So they they shouldn't say to themselves, oh, well, my master's a Christian, that's all right, I can slack off now. Shouldn't, Shouldn't see that. Now, on the flip side, the Christian masters were equally obliged to care for their slaves and to treat their slaves Uh, in a good manner. Uh, We see in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 9, another letter that Paul writes, uh, Paul commands masters to treat their slaves with respect since both masters and slaves actually ultimately have God as their ultimate master. Now, these are slightly uncomfortable verses for us, aren't they? Because they raise the question, does the Bible endorse slavery? Surely slavery is unchristian, right? Well, the New Testament doesn't so much endorse slavery as seeks to revolutionize it. Because the gospel message declares that slaves and masters are both equal 
in God's sight. They're both equal members in God's family. This letter was written at a time when slavery was a a social norm in the Roman society. Uh, Paul certainly recognises that great evils and abuses can come from slavery. So if we think back to chapter 1 where Paul gives his long list of sins in verses 10 to 12 there, he includes slavery as, or slave traders as one of those sins. So he certainly recognises that there's the great potential for evil and abuse to come from that. But he also recognises that there's great potential for uh, the slavery system at that time to be used for good um, by allowing the, the gospel to permeate through society. He recognises that being a slave to a Christian master who treats his slaves well is actually, in that society, quite a good outcome for many people. If um, the slave master was treating the slave with fairness and respect, then there was actually great potential uh, for very good working conditions for that slave. And so Paul is saying that um, applying the gospel to this norm of society at that time actually um, enables slavery to be used for great good. So what does honouring selflessly mean for us today? Well, it means not seeking to use our relationships for our own purposes, but seeing our church family as being first and foremost a chance to bless other people. Um, I used to, when I was at uni, I went to the, the Christian student group there, and um, ES it was called, and there was, there was a guy who came along who was in student politics and so he would, he would always sign up for ES, and then you'd never see him for the whole year until the week that student elections were on. And then he'd come along to every single ES thing. He'd be handing out flyers. He'd be asking people to walk and um, hand out flyers for him, that sort of thing. Um, and then you'd never see him again until student election rolled around the next year. So just an example of someone who perhaps didn't quite have the interests of the family around him first there. Our church life will be sacrificial at times because that's the reality of family life, isn't it? That we make sacrifices for each other. And so we need to intentionally seek to imitate Jesus in how we love and care for each other. Thinking not about what we can gain from one another, first and foremost, but how we can give of ourselves to one another. It's a bit like that old John F. Kennedy quote, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. There's, a, there's an element of that in how we think about how we relate to our church family as well. Um, serving at church, for example, is a, a great way that we can love and care for our church family. Um, we've all walked in here and someone who's on welcoming has handed us a leaflet outline. Um, we're sitting on chairs that uh, were stacked here by Paul and Malachi at 8am. We've been listening to great music leading from our band who have got here early to set up as well. So serving is a a great way that um, we as a family can can work together and be able to bless each other um, with our our time, our skills, and our capacity as well. But there will be times when you're the one in need, when you're the one who needs to be cared for. And that's the beauty and reality of family life as well. When needy people helping other needy people. And the great joy is that there'll be times when, when you're the one who's able to, to bless other people, and there'll be, but there will be those other times uh, when you'll need people to help you out 
in your needs as well. And that's the, the great blessing of a church family that we can serve each other in this way. As we think about the privilege of being members of God's family, as we reflect on how Jesus answered our greatest need, how he died and and rose again to make us right with God and to secure our salvation, we should think, how do I lovingly serve my family in response? We should think, yeah, what are the ways that I can invite my my church family into my life, how I can build my life around my church family and serve them well? How can I, I care for those who are in need? How can I respect those who lead? And how can I serve selflessly um, those around me? Now, we've been talking about the church plant next year for a while. We're going to have this church in Brighton running still, and we're going to have Colin taking a team of people down to Woodcroft to plant a church down there early next year, which is really exciting. It's a little bit sad as well, though isn't it? And if the idea of planting a church next year is sad for you, then in a sense, that's actually a good thing. Because when family members who we love move out of home, so to speak, that is bittersweet, isn't it? Uh, Wherever we're all going to church this time next year, there'll be people who we love who we're not going to see regularly on a Sunday anymore. But our prayerful vision is too thriving families, families growing together in Jesus, families on mission together for Jesus, families displaying the truth of the gospel to the surrounding world, both here and in Woodcroft. (coughs) Seeing the gospel advanced as people grow in their faith in Jesus and, God willing, as people come to put their trust in Jesus for the first time within both of these families. We all have an important role to play in our church family and so much to gain from being members of it. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for the privilege that it is to be members of your family. Uh, We pray that you would help us uh, to think through, for each of us personally, what that means to be family members, how we love and care well for each other, how we invest in each other, um, how we live selflessly as family members to each other. We pray for those of us who have particular needs at this time, that they would be needs that our fellow family members would be caring for us, listening to us, praying for us, and blessing us in. Uh, Please help us more and more to be investing in each other and to be building each other up and to be loving and caring for each other and that our church family might more and more reflect how you would have us live together as a family. As we look forward uh, to a day when... Our whole church family in all time and space will be gathered together and we'll be able to celebrate eternally with you. So please help us to keep that great hope and that you'll give us wisdom in how we love and care well for each other. Amen.